Uh, it's my privilege to get to uh, come in this morning and get to have a conversation about God's Word with you. Um, I, I thought I was over. I thought I was far enough close into the fall and into winter that I wasn't having to uh, deal with uh, mowing grass anymore. Um, but alas, there was, even at our soccer game uh, yesterday, on the freshly mowed grass, they had to do it one more time. And so thus, here I am again, a little bit, uh, a little bit stretching with my voice uh, this morning. But we, we made it through first service, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to make it through um, this service all the same. Now, when, uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Chris sent me an email when he was finishing up chapter 8, uh, he had asked me if I would like to, uh, if I could come in and, and teach all of uh, chapter 9. And I don't know if it was a joke or a taunt or what, because he specifically said that. He said, maybe you could do all of nine in one sermon. <laughs> and, uh, and part of me, truth be told, part of me kind of was like, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that challenge. Like, you, put the, you lay down the gauntlet, I'll take it up. I'll, I'll see if I can do that. Um, but then I remembered back to when I was at a, uh, a preaching conference, uh, what seems like five or six years ago, but uh, it was March before COVID. Um, <laughs> I was at this preaching conference, and there was a panel of four preachers up, up uh, on stage, and, and one of the audience members asked of these preachers, what's the hardest passage um, for you to preach on? And the first, first uh, preacher kind of gave a, a pretty clever answer, and he's like, really, kind of the ones that, uh, whatever message convicts me the most, those are the ones that I feel hard to, to go and to present. And uh, the second guy kind of affirmed that and kind of piggybacked off his answers and said, it's really the ones that are most convicting for the church. That's what's hard for me to do. Um, and the third guy just essentially restated the first two, but just shorter and more elegantly. Uh, but then it got to uh, the fourth guy, a guy named uh, Alistair Begg. Now, um, without missing a beat in his, like, slow, draw, Scottish accent, he was just like, it's Daniel chapter 9. That's what it is. Uh, and he's like, Daniel chapter 9 is, is the hardest uh, in the entire book of Daniel and arguably the hardest in all of Scripture. Because if you don't have the understanding of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, uh, then you don't understand uh, rightly Jesus' uh, prophetic discourses that are found in the Gospels. And you won't even understand the vast majority of Revelation. If you want to see how this is all going to end, you need to really understand Daniel chapter 9. So I remembered that. Um, and thus, we're going to be in the book for two weeks. Uh, so all my <coughs> procrastinator brothers and sisters can appreciate and get an amen because we'll just deal with that hard stuff next week. Um, so I can have a week more, uh, hopefully, to pull that together. But uh, what we are going to consider uh, is what we just read, which was, uh, ironically, the majority of the text of Daniel chapter 9 isn't on this vision. Vision actually only occurs in the last four verses of the book. Uh, the majority of the book is this prayer that we ran into from Daniel. Um, and I think it it's, uh, would be right and fitting for us to, to consider that prayer in its context before we would kind of approach um, the rest of kind of the interpretation uh, of this prophecy next week. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do our, our, hopefully in typical fashion, we're going to jump back in and kind of break some of the sections, pull them out. And then hopefully my hope is to kind of create a framework in which we can see what Daniel's doing and how we can then relate uh, even in our own lives. Um, so jump back in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the descendant of Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. 
This is a normal beginning. Uh, if you've been studying with us through uh, Daniel, um, this is kind of Daniel's kind of main statement. Every time he starts a, a chapter, he always kind of gives this chronological update, uh, kind of the setting, where we are, what we're doing. Again, this is super helpful for us because as we found in the uh, first six chapters of this book during the narrative sections, uh, he kind of walks through this whole play of events in the narrative, and then we get the ending, uh, half of the book that's all about prophecy, and the prophecy actually overlaps. Even though it comes second, it actually overlaps with the narrative here. And so this is what we're seeing, and we're seeing now that in chapter 9, we're back to Darius. We're hearkening back to the times and the events that uh, Daniel ran into when he was considering um, uh, the new kind of king, the new ruler who was coming in. Chris covered this in uh, chapter 6, uh, this first year of the Darius, Darius the Mede. Um, Darius, again, is just kind of the title name uh, for a man named Gerbrius, the military conqueror who was, um, kind of came in and then was put as a subordinate ruler over the land. So that's where the Darius comes from. He was the ruler over the land. And, uh, and it's really Cyrus, uh, the Persian um, king, who's the ultimate ruler. And so he's the one who's come in uh, and conquered all these people, and he's put Darius in his place uh, as a subordinate ruler. And this is where we find uh, God's people now subju subjugated to them. Essentially, what we find in jumping back into our, uh, our, our narrative stories is we had um, last week with uh, chapter 8, um, we had 8 occur, and then we ran into um, the events of chapter 5, where it's the fall of Belshazzar. And then now we have this um, prayer of chapter 9, and we're not exactly sure um, if this comes before the events of 6 of Daniel and the lion's den, but this is the same Darius from there, or if this is a prayer that comes after uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Um, again, we don't really know, but somewhere in that placing is where this is happening. Um, we date it somewhere typically around 538 B.C., uh, and, but what is more important is around this time is whether it comes before or comes after, they are linked. Um, we'll see some, some linkage between um, what happened in Daniel's and Lions and, and what happens now in this uh, prayer, um, because then we ran into Daniel getting in trouble for his prayers, and now we're going to see kind of the regiment, the routine, the discipline Daniel had in his prayer life. When we see what Daniel's doing and how he structured his prayer life, it makes a lot more sense of why it was in such a, a known and <clears throat> a uh, figured out thing for all the satraps uh, to be able to look and say, well, this is what Daniel does, so let's get him doing what he does. Uh, and so, that's, so even though we don't necessarily know the timing of it, what we do know is that they are linked together. So before we jump into the, probably the contents of the prayer, I first want to look at um, maybe some of the, what prompts the prayers. Why, why does this prayer exist? Why do we have all these verses of Daniel um, pleading before God? And so to do that, let's look down in uh, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, I find this fascinating. Daniel's acquired, apparently, the book of Jeremiah, or at least a portion of the writings of Jeremiah. Um, they are contemporaries in this time. They, they existed and wrote um, about the same time, even though Jeremiah was a little bit older. It is likely um, that Jeremiah and Daniel and even Ezekiel um, are all kind of, uh, at least 
acknowledge of each other, and they know, they know each other. This is all happening kind of at the same time. A lot of scholars actually even think that it is very likely that both Daniel and Ezekiel sat underneath the teaching of Jeremiah before the exile, because they would have been young men, and so they would have been exposed to Jeremiah's teaching at that time. Um, but whatever it is, I think, again, it's, it's really fascinating that here we have Daniel in his book acknowledging Jeremiah over in his book. Um, we talked about this on the podcast, just a quick plug for that, this past um, Wednesday when we were uh, just kind of relating to the notion of the reliability of Scripture and how even Scripture attests to itself. Um, and because this is, this is what Daniel's saying. He's calling this Scripture. He says, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet. He's saying this is, this is not just Jeremiah's words. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. And so he's, he's studying it. He's, he's considering the Scripture, and he is seeing uh, it for what it is. It is God's Word. And, I, and again, I find this fascinating, a fascinating kind of ex, uh, another glimpse into Daniel and his personal character. Um, because Daniel, if, if any prophet was gifted in such a way to be successful at the role that he had, I mean, it would have been Daniel, Right? And we ran into that, even with his friends, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Again, if anybody was going to be successful as, a, uh, as an interpreter, as somebody who's going to come in and uh, give guidance to the, the royal uh, court, then Daniel has that gifting. I mean, it's, it's part of his skill set. I mean... The Lord gave it to him then. He could have just coasted then the rest of the way through, inheriting this one position to the next position, doing exactly what he has. This is just exercising my gifting, what I know best. I mean, whatever is the near ancient East equivalent of gardening, I mean, he could probably should now be into his retirement age, kicking back, taking it easy, enjoying kind of this long kind of fruitful life uh, that, that he, has, he has been able to have because God gifted him at a very young age. But that's, that's not where we run into Daniel. That's not where we actually see him. We see him hard at work. We see him still desperate uh, to seek the Word of God. I think Daniel rightly remembered where his gifting come from. And so he then is continuing to pursue the source of that gifting, and he's reading and he's studying the Word of the Lord. And again, I find this, I find this not only fascinating, but I also find it convicting. Um, because truth be told, uh, when I approach the Lord quickest, when I find myself in a situation where I'm above my capacity, where, where it is outside of my realm of gifting or ability or strength, that that's when I approach the Lord quickest. I often tarry and delay my approach to the Lord when I think it's a situation I can handle. When it's thinking, I was like, oh, well, I got that. I can do that in my own strength. And then I forget to then go, the only reason I can accomplish that in my strength is because somebody gave me that strength, and that's the source. And I need to go back to him in that and in these things. And so I was convicted even, again, by this revelation of, uh, of Daniel's character here. But Daniel, when he's, <clears throat> what he's doing in the study of Scripture is he's come across uh, Jeremiah and specifically a prophecy, this prophecy of about 70 years. Um, we, we run into that prophe prophecy revealed to us in Jeremiah 25 and in 29. I'm going to throw up uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 11 through 12, and this is, this is just a glimpse so we can understand what, what, what was Daniel studying, um, what was this prophecy that, that's leading him uh, into this prayer. 
It says this, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Now, could you imagine? Could you imagine being studying God's word and reading this? Again, we, we've about this in the Daniel's probably in his late 70s, early 80s at this point. Um, here he is being removed in captivity, put underneath the Babylonians, and now he's seen kind of the first turn over of the Babylonian Empire into another nation, and he's looking at these 70 years. I mean, this is it. I mean, maybe this is me. Maybe this is happening. Maybe this is coming to me. And so he's, he's this putting himself in this message, and he's saying, well, Lord, I'm going to seek you, and I want to know, is this happening? What's, what's going on here? Um, there's a couple, I would say, as a quick comment, uh, options for interpretation about the 70 years. Um, some, some don't take it literally um, and still think it figuratively, and so it would actually play into not actually happening here, but still being a part of um, even the, the vision that we'll run into at the last four verses of this chapter. Um, but others point to it as saying, no, this is actually, we see this. We actually see how this is fulfilled. Um, and there's two prominent ways, and whether one of them's right and one of them's not right, or like Chris has been leading us so well through this understanding, or one is right and the other one is also right. It's another cycle of how this kind of goes to be. Um, but if you want to throw up that graphic real quick, David, um, you can take a look. This is, this is kind of a quick timeline, two timelines showing uh, the potential uh, equations of how these 70 years might have been fulfilled. The first starts in 605, where Daniel and his friends were deported out of uh, Jerusalem and taken into captivity in the first place. So maybe Daniel's looking back and saying, well, it was 605 when I was pulled into Babylon. Uh, and so now, looking and starting at 605, we find ourselves here again in 538, because again, in Ezra chapter 1, we have Cyrus's decree um, that allows the Israelites to, to start to understand this process of rebuilding the, the temple. Um, and we ran into Darius. Again, who does he work for? Cyrus. So this is, this is the same time. And so maybe he's sitting here, and he's looked back, and he's counting up, and then all of a sudden he's like, this is probably going to happen, 536, which again from Ezra 3, we get that the temple reconstruction begins. So maybe that's how it was filled, or maybe he looks back and he says, no, in 586, the temple was destroyed, um, and so then counting, depending on how you count it, of the 70 years, well, in 515, the temple is actually going to be completed, as Ezra tells us. And so maybe Daniel's sitting kind of right here, thinking this is either about to happen or it's going to happen maybe in my lifetime. Maybe he's, you know, starting to get a little bit excited about this and starting to see how is this going to play out. But again, whether it, is, uh, whether it is these or another uh, fulfillment of it or however it happens, what we do see is we do see Daniel still as a faithful studier of God's Word. He is putting himself in the work to study and to see what the Lord has and how the Lord is working. So then how does Daniel respond? Verse 3, Then I, Daniel, kicked back and put my feet up, for there's nothing to do except wait on God. It doesn't say that. <laughs> This is that challenge again that we ran into when we talked about, uh, when we talked about prophecy and our even American or Western uh, temptation is just to say, well, well here's all this mystery. Um, let me look at it. Let me study it. Let me find out what it means. And then once I can kind of put all the pieces in the puzzle, once I kind of solved it in the knowledge in my head, well, then I'm good. That's all I got to do with the application of it is just solve it. 
Um, this, this is, again, that would be a wrong approach for us. It's a wrong approach for Daniel. It's not what Daniel does. Um, whether Daniel's seeing these events play out in his life, um, he doesn't just kind of think, oh, well, I'm good. I can, I can kick back and I can just kind of wait for God to do what he's doing. But instead, Daniel rightly sees God at work, sees God at work through his scripture. And then what does Daniel want to do? He wants to join in on that work. He wants to participate in the work of God. And how does he go about doing that? Praying. Praying. Prayer is the act in which Daniel uh, fundamentally knows prayer is not a supplemental thing for Daniel. It is a fundamental thing for Daniel. Uh, and Daniel knows that if, if God is at work, he can join God at that work and he can do so through prayer. I wrote it this way. I wrote, trusting in God's promises and understanding God's purposes doesn't lead Daniel to passivity. Rather, it leads him to participate in God's word through prayer. The prayer of God's people is interwoven in the outplay of God's purposes. That's how I wrote it. A man much smarter than I, and it was worth uh, putting up onto the screen so you can see. This is uh, Dr. Constable's word about this. He said, Daniel did not regard prayer as unnecessary in view of the certainty of the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. He viewed prayer properly as the one means that God uses to accomplish his will in human history. What a fascinating line. Through prayer, we become partners with God in bringing his will to fruition in the word, in the world. Sorry. And so Daniel's been studying uh, God's word. He runs across uh, this prophecy, and he responds rightly with prayer, participating in God's work. And I think this is good for us, because we've, we've been now in this prophecy section, and we're going to continue in this prophecy section of Daniel. And if you've been sitting here and thinking, like, what, what do I do with all this? And there's a lot of history. There's a lot of dates. Um, how, how do I respond to all this stuff that I'm hearing? Well, Daniel models it for us. It's prayer. Um, maybe that's a good kind of touch point for us now as we're still going to continue out at the end of this book is through the rest of this book. Um, hopefully, as we consider that those prophecies to come, we will then be motivated to participate in God's work through prayer, that that would be the right and simple application. And so hopefully that's the case. And I think it's kind of fun uh, just with the timing of all these things, um, because uh, what we see is we see Daniel uh, respond to, Daniel's response to scripture leads him to respond in prayer. Um, uh, I was asked uh, this past Wednesday uh, to, to teach the, the students in the student ministry on their Wednesday night programming, um, and John Strzok's been leading them through uh, Richard Foster's uh, book, Celebration of Disciplines, all the um, uh, spiritual disciplines uh, conversations. And last Wednesday, by the timing of it all, um, I was actually uh, getting to teach on the study of Scripture, on study, on Bible reading. Um, and so it was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to be back uh, with the students. I invited a, uh, a young man to stand in front of me as I had a big machete and asked him if it would be okay if I threw it at him. Um, you just kind of get to do that kind of stuff with students. And, and it's probably good. I'm not the student minister anymore. Um, but in reality, why, why I did I had I'd first got him up, and then I asked him if I could throw uh, a Bible to him. He said yes. I threw it to him. He threw it back at me, and that was fine. And then I asked him, can I throw a machete at him, which he was like, no. But then I made the mistake because he's a young dude, and I was like, well, you throw it at me? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, no, that, that would break down the illustration. But 
essentially what I was trying to help with them was when the uh, author of Hebrews, uh, you know, writes that uh, God's Word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, uh, able to divide between soul and spirit. And that I was confessing to them that the reason why I probably didn't diligently pursue the study of Scripture as a young uh, teenager and as a, as a uh, student was because uh, one of the reasons was I just lacked an appreciation of its power. I just didn't understand what it was and how powerful it was. And that was what began to draw on me. If, like, if I could intuit to Scripture the same way that I intuit about how to handle blades safely, then what would that look like? How would that transform my even pursuit of the discipline of studying Scripture? But we had, we had a good time, and, and we talked through several different points. But one of the points that I shared then that, were, that actually probably shaped uh, why I said it then and why I'm going to say it over and over and over through this sermon is because uh, one of the things that when we look at the purpose of studying Scripture, I, I told him, I was like, if you can just accomplish two things when you study Scripture, you're off on a really good start. Um, the, first re- the first reason you want to study Scripture is you want to see who God is. Um, you want to know who God is. God has revealed Himself in Scripture, and so if we just aim to know what He said about Himself, then that's going to be a pretty good start. And then secondly, if you can then look at who God is and then knows know what he says about us, what he calls us to be, then that's actually a pretty good basis for starting. How do you study Scripture? Well, I'll I'll try to see what God says about him and what God says about me. And I think that that would be a a successful start in the process of reading Scripture. And what is, I think, ironic here is now in Daniel's prayer, what we see Daniel doing is almost the same thing. He's read Scripture. He's pursued God's Word. He's seen who God is, and he sees who God calls him to be. And then what does he do in his prayer? He just prays that same model. He's praying those same thing. He's about to, he prays to God for who God is and for who God has called him to be. And this is why, this is what Daniel does. This is why it changes his position, why he turns towards God. Um, verse 3 actually says he turns his face towards God, as we read in the ESV, um, if you have like the NIV or NLT or um, the Christian Standard Bible, um, you probably get something along the lines of, of he uh, turned his attention to God. Um, that's, not, that's not a bad translation of it, um, but I like the ESV more literal in the wording um, because the word here, turn to face, is actually just the Hebrew word for face, pana. It is that, it's more, it's a physical kind of feel to this passage that he's turning his face and looking at God. Um, I, I get this, I, I relate to this, uh, especially as a father of young children, um, because how do I know that my daughter's listening to me? Because right then, when I said daughter, she was looking at her coloring, and what did she do? I said daughter, and she turned her face to me. This is why when I'm like, hey, Myla, when she's playing and coloring, and I'm like, hey, Myla, can you come over here and pick this up? And she still cleans and plays, well, what do I ask her to do? Look at me. Hey, My- hey, Myla, give me your face. Look at my eyes. Hey, okay, good. Now you hear me. I know you're paying attention to me because you're giving me your face. And I think this is what we get here. You get this physicality of, of, of Daniel turning his face and focusing in on God. We actually have run into this word already. This is the same word that uh, is found in Genesis chapter 3, um, way back even in the garden, um, when the, uh, the sound of the Lord, um, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and then Adam and Eve have sinned at this point, and so where are they? 
they then go and hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. This word presence in the Hebrew is panah, it's face. They have essentially hid their face from God's face. Because because of sin in their life, it's now inappropriate for them to lock their face to God's face. Now, that was their case, and luckily for Adam and Eve and for all of humanity, God did not leave them in that state, um, but instead, through His covenant promises and His uh, steadfast love, um, He has established now a process where they then can experience redemption and look back to Him face to face. And this is what Daniel's doing. Daniel now is getting to turn his face and see the very face of God through his words. This is why I think that Daniel represents very, very well what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27, 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Man, even if we can hear God's word this morning and respond by turning our face to him, what a great application. But again, how does Daniel turn his face to God? Well, he does so in prayer. And in his prayer, fascinatingly enough, he does these same two purposes. He acknowledges who God is, and he acknowledges who God says he is. Let's look first at who God is. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel addresses here God as God. I mean, we are like God in that we bear uh, His image. This is why what Jared prayed uh, in the, during the worship times. We are, we are like God because we bear His image, but we are not God. God is not like us. This is why we sing about His thoughts and His ways not being our thoughts and our ways. That, that actually comes from Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there's, there's an aspect here of where Daniel's starting out, and he is praying who God is, and that God is God. He's paying him that respect and that reverency. Yet in his immeasurable majesty, that doesn't limit God in his individual intimacy. And I, and I think that, that that is found even here, even more subtly, in what Daniel proclaims about God in this verse. Because what he says, he says, calls out to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, my God. He makes a claim. He's saying that this God, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, or Eloha, meaning my God, it is Yahweh, my God. He's getting to claim this intimacy, this personal extension. It would be inappropriate for him to claim that, if not God having extended it. Later, when we see Lord with, all, with the lowercase ones, he's going to be calling him uh, Master, um, Adonai, Adonai. And, uh, and, and so I think it's, it's interesting that he starts off first by proclaiming who God is and the fact that God has made himself known to him. But then he goes on to continue this list. And he, he jumps back and forth, right? And he says who God is, and then he says who God says he is, and then who God is and who he says he is. And he's going back and forth. But here's some of the statements that we read about who God is, just put into a list form. Daniel's recognizing the truth about God, and he is saying these things. He's saying he is Lord, that he is God, that he is master, that he is great, that he is awesome, that his love is unwavering, that he is righteous and just, he is merciful He is forgiving, 
He has given us his voice, he has extended us his favor, and he has confirmed his word. I mean, what a great proclamation about our God being great. Now, this isn't, this isn't Daniel giving God a theology lesson. Um, this isn't Daniel saying, oh, I'll tell you, God, who you are. Um, no, that would be vastly inappropriate. The only reason that Daniel gets to proclaim this truth about God's glory is because God has revealed himself to Daniel, to us. This is through his word. He's saying, nothing, nothing on earth uh, can give me this knowledge of God, but, but God himself has given it for us. I mean, what a gift about God. So Daniel's read this truth about God, and now he prays this truth about God. Um, and again, I stand convicted. I mean, how much, how much of my prayers are egocentric about me um, and not so much God-centric about him? And so I stand again just saying, man, what would it look like in my own life if I considered uh, my prayers through the lens of who God has said he is? And so God has revealed himself as majestic and as intimate, and we need to make sure we don't lose either one of these. But again, like I said, so he's, even now in the verse 4, we saw that he proclaims who God is, and then now in 5 and 6, he's going to give us a hint of who he is. Who does Daniel think he is? Look down in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrongly and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in the name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. I think this is interesting. Daniel doesn't, Daniel doesn't look to the world to tell him who he is. Daniel doesn't look to himself to tell him who he is. Um, that's, that's the temptation probably that we have, uh, all humanity has, is to either look to those of us around to define ourselves or to ourselves to define ourselves. I mean, if Daniel did that, he actually um, could take a totally different posture, right? I mean, if Daniel looked at the world and he said, well, look how I've been successful, right? Look how I've been able to remain not just this low captive slave, but have moved up and have been the right-hand man of kings, I've been entrusted with so much responsibility in this land. So really, the 70 years of exile, what this means for me is I get to wait for my reward. All those jokers, they're waiting for their redemption because of their sin. So they're waiting for that 70 years to end because they need to be saved from their sin. But me, I just get to wait for the reward. But no, Daniel, Daniel doesn't, doesn't do that. I mean, you could even almost give it to Daniel if he took a little bit of a jaded view here. Um, if, he was, if he was like, all of y'all who keep sinning and have, not having faith is the reason why I had my entire life from childhood ripped from me and I was put into captivity. It's because of y'all's lack of faith and here I am being the faithful one and yet my life isn't here. But that, that, that would be how Daniel could respond if he defined himself against the world or against just by his own measure. But that's not what Daniel does. Daniel defines himself against who God says he is. And so here he is, he's, he's clearly seeing the state of the people, and he's praying for their blessing. And it is in their shortcomings that Daniel also relates. The word here he uses is we. A pastor friend of ours, Wayne Broderick, put it like this, something fascinating happens when we pray honestly. It washes away the bitterness. It allows us to be righteously angry, but then leave the results in God's hands. It makes us reflect on our own sins, putting life in perspective. Daniel here is saying we. He's not looking at the other sins. 
of other people and being upset. He's looking at the other sins of other people and seeing himself right there along with them. And got another list because then he goes through and so he's saying who God is. He's saying who he is. And these are some of the things that he tells us the truth about us, the truth about Daniel. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We acted wickedly. We rebelled against God. We turned away from God's commands and rules. We have not listened to God. We have earned shame. We have committed treacherous acts. We are disloyal. We disobey. We have not repented. We brought all this calamity on ourselves. Now, at this point, you're probably like, I thought he said he was going to leave the hard stuff for next week. But this is us. I mean, this is you. This is me. In fact, in my notes, I actually have it written where it's I. It's not we. It's I have sinned. I have done wrong. I acted wickedly. I have rebelled against God. This is the state of all humanity. This isn't the list that just applies in 605 B.C. to the state of Israel and uh, and God's people. That, That it doesn't just simply apply back then and then that's the end of it. No, this is a statement of all of humanity. All of humanity has done this. This is the list of descriptors that is the truth about all of us. And I think the application then is necessarily the same. It's the same that then when we recognize who God is and who he calls us, who we are, then we rightly turn and confess. Daniel's praying this prayer as a confession. He is confessing God's glory first, and then he is confessing second his insufficiencies. Herman Veldkamp, a scholar, um, Dutch, I think, uh, wrote it like this. He said, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked And again, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sins. Where the confession of sins dies out, the church is no longer the church. Oof. This is what I think what Chris gets at when he talks about the concept of Sunday bests, putting on our Sunday bests, right? Because it's different if it's like, no, I like to make sure I'm presentable, dress night, because after all, I'm coming before God in all of his majesty. That's, that's, that's okay. That's one thing. But when we use the idea of Sunday best, meaning that we come into this place in our best, not acknowledging any of our worst, then we're coming before God in the wrong way. We're coming before God in a way that is lying to ourselves and is lying to everybody else in here. I think this is why we invite people to come and join this dysfunctional family Because there's something right about us coming into this place and knowing this is who God says he is and this is who God says we are. And that he is righteous and we are not. He is God and we are not. And I think it's super important to have the understanding of both of those things. Both of those things in tandem. Because both of those things in tandem. If we forgot the first thing, who God is, and we just focus on who we are, well then this is a really bleak place to gather. Uh, and just be beating up ourselves and not being able to do anything about it. But luckily, when we see who God is and see who he's called us to be, we remember what God has promised to us, and namely, this is what Daniel does, and why he understands appropriately grace. Look back down, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become byword among all around us. According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away. 
It's super interesting. God's righteousness, Daniel proclaims, is the basis for their judgment, and also it is God's righteousness that is the basis for his deliverance. He is able to ask for grace, appeal for mercy. And I think that that is what is beautiful about this combination. Because again, rightly seeing who God is, rightly seeing who we are, then we also remember the grace and understand and appreciate in a new way that we need it and we can't do anything to get it. Long ago, that's how I heard grace described to me. It is that uh, you are wrong and you can't do anything to make yourself right. But then there's this unmerited favor of God that says, even when you can't, I will. This is his love and his steadfast grace. So Daniel prays to who God is and then who he is, and he puts it in this right posture to consider and ask for God's grace. Verse 17, now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great, what? Mercy. Daniel doesn't ask for grace because he somehow thinks he's worthy of it. Daniel asks for grace because God is so worthy of it. This is why in Hebrews we're told that we can draw confidently to the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I think this is where we are. This is who God is. And this is who we are. And this is why we can have grace. Daniel 9, 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. 